Welcome to Bitcoin Macro, a pop-up podcast produced as part of the Coindesk Invest New York conference in November. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly. Both the podcast and the event explore the intersection of Bitcoin and the global macro economy with perspectives from some of the leading thinkers in finance, crypto, and beyond. I'm delighted to be joined today by Meltem Demures, one of the most famous people in crypto, that's for sure. Uh, Meltem has been around for a long time, but really sprung to international prominence with her amazing testimony in front of the House of Congress committee this past summer on the whole Libra offering. But people who have been working in cryptocurrencies for a long time have always uh, been aware of Meltem's brilliance, and she's been kind enough to join us for today's podcast. Uh, this podcast is really trying to look at Bitcoin's place in the world today and is a taste of the type of content that we're going to be focusing on in New York City on November 12th uh, at Invest. So, Meltem, thank you for joining Thank you so much for having me, Nolan. That was such a beautiful intro. I feel like I'd love to have you intro me all the time. <laughs> well, welcome. I've had the good fortune of knowing you for, for quite a while I now. And, uh, we met a long time And watching ago. you gather all of this, uh, this ability to, to sort of let your ideas shine on the global stage has been a, a real treat. And uh, I'm happy to have even met you on the train back from Washington that day. That's right. <laughs> I think I was enjoying a, a Bud Light. <laughs> <laughs> you, you definitely earned it. You definitely earned it. Um, so let's jump right in. We're talking about Bitcoin in the world today. And um, the first question I have really is around whether or not you see Bitcoin as a true macro asset. Um, is it there? Is it in the main stage? Is it in the side stage somewhere? Is it in the wings? Or is this really something that can be thought of as a macro asset today? I think for most people in the world right now, particularly in the world of investing in finance, Bitcoin and crypto assets are not yet an asset they think about. It's um, a very small asset class. It's around you know 200 to 250 billion right now. That's very small. <laughs> and so for most investors looking to allocate capital, moving even five to $10 million into Bitcoin um, creates a lot of price movement. And there are not really efficient ways to do that today. So um, that that's one concern, I think, certainly. I think the other piece to think about just on a, a macro level that's really relevant is uh, macro investors sort of define the world in the context of specific assets, assets and markets, pardon. And so I think as an investor, you know, you look at um, you look at sovereign debt, you look at um, debt generally as an asset class, corporate debt bonds, you look at equities, um, and then a lot of people like to lump crypto under the alternatives category. Alternatives is sort of a, a growing um, part of the investment world, um, and I think it's it's challenging for a lot of investors, even in the alternative space, to really try to figure out where Bitcoin fits in. And um, so I think the, the big challenge is to people in our industry, we like to talk about Bitcoin as an asset class because we live, breathe, eat, sleep, crypto all day, every day. And certainly in our little part of the world, um, Bitcoin feels like the big asset. But I think, uh, frankly, to most investors, uh, you know, Bitcoin's not really on their consciousness. And if it is, I think it's it's far too early. And if anything, the place 
where folks are getting exposure is through their PA or personal account, um, certainly not through through their firm or, or their fund. And I don't think that's going to change in the, the near future. And we can talk about that more as well. So in practice, what you're saying is it's, it's not quite there yet. If it was in this sort of macro level, the features that would define it, the, the aspects of it that would sort of propel it forward, I think we can even trace to some of your testimony back in, in Washington in July. In that testimony, I think what we saw was, you know, you had Facebook, which was almost threatening, not a nation state, but it was taking on certain powers. It was taking on certain responsibilities that we would normally prescribe to a nation state. And it was saying, we're going to issue this private money. That, of course, got everyone's backup. I think one of the things that was remarkable about your testimony is you showed that Bitcoin didn't propose the same challenges, yet it is coherently creating what amounts to a digital jurisdiction at the same time and is perhaps, um, perhaps it is at the foundation for this type of macro asset uh, going forward, the foundation for um, what could amount to uh, an important money supply, a hard money supply. Let's untangle that a bit. So I think what's challenging when we talk about Bitcoin is unlike uh, debt or equities, Bitcoin represents three different things. Um, Bitcoin is technology in the context of the Bitcoin protocol, which is open source code. And open source software has been a part of our world for uh, a long time. Um, And open source, I think, is starting to gain acceptance as an investable category um, in the venture world and and beyond. And so Bitcoin at its core is the Bitcoin protocol. Uh, Bitcoin is a network. uh, And what's interesting here is Bitcoin is kind of a supranational global uh, communication network. And so um, there are tens of thousands of devices around the world, um, whether people are running miners or people are just running full nodes, um, there's this network of uh, computational devices that are uh, maintaining the Bitcoin ledger and engaging in validating transactions and uh, maintaining the integrity of the ledger. And so the Bitcoin network is, is physical in nature. And then lastly, you have Bitcoin, the asset. And so what I think is interesting here is for a traditional investor, it's sort of a challenging paradigm when these three things are wrapped together. So when you see people look at Bitcoin, um, they'll talk about Bitcoin from the context of software infrastructure. You'll hear people talk about Bitcoin in the context of a commodity because it's produced and it's mined um, digitally in the way that we sort of think about producing and mining things like gold and, and oil that are limited in supply theoretically. And then uh, you have people talking about it in the context of of currency, of of hard money. What I think is interesting about Libra is Libra styles itself as a cryptocurrency, but really the point I was trying to make in Congress is anyone can call anything a cryptocurrency, but that does not make it so. And um, what's interesting about Bitcoin is unlike a commodity, unlike a bond, unlike an equity, uh, Bitcoin is backed by nothing but the demand for it. And so it's a little bit unique in that regard. It has no physicality, which I think is part of a larger conversation about the evolution from, you know, highly physical world to one where we increasingly engage digitally. So that's difficult for people to grasp. It doesn't necessarily fit into uh, the constructs we have for assets in our world, Um, even assets that have been dematerialized, pardon, uh, like stocks that trade, you know, they still have a physical share certificate that sits somewhere. Um, And then I think the other component 
component that's interesting is when we look at what Libra is comprised of and what it proposes to do, it's really just a pooled investment vehicle where the interest and the fees accrue to the association. And so um, I think it's it's an interesting series of choices made by, by Facebook. I'm not really clear as to why they felt this was the best approach. But I think if you look at the intent of Libra, it's, it's a pool of capital. You're taking money from people who purchase the tokens. You're putting it into uh, currencies and interest-bearing instruments, and you're holding it. And then you're distributing that plus transaction fees to people who participate in this private closed sort of group called the Libra Association. And so to me, that's sort of the antithesis of with Bitcoin. So my only goal really in that testimony was to help clarify that Bitcoin is not Libra. Bitcoin is separate and distinct from every other cryptocurrency, and it has features that make it incredibly unique. And uh, Libra and many things are, in fact, not cryptocurrencies. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity in language that's certainly having specificity in how we use these terms is starting to become more and more important, particularly uh, for regulators, policymakers who are trying to understand what's happening, but sometimes the translation they're getting um, isn't particularly helpful and in fact can be more confusing than not. So I want to pick up on two things that you said and, and you said that um, you know, Libra is of course this pool investment, so the incentives of all these parties are, are definitely for transaction fees. But you also mentioned that because Bitcoin is only backed by the demand of the user, that it really can exist as an uncorrelated asset because it isn't, you know, Libra would theoretically be involved in all the ups and downs of a typical economy um, because Bitcoin is only really, the value of Bitcoin is only really based on the demand that, that users and, and people have for it. Can it behave as a safe haven asset? I think the idea of safe haven is um, an interesting conversation. I think the way people typically frame this, is this a risk on or a risk as off it? risk off pardon um, asset. And I think uh, the challenge with safe haven is again, everything's relative. So if I live in the United States and I have US dollars and I have a driver's license and I have a bank account and a debit card, um, I, I probably don't view Bitcoin <laughs> as a safe haven asset because the dollar is pretty safe for me and I'm able to do everything I want and I don't necessarily um, in times of crisis feel that the dollar depreciates uh, uh, rapidly. And so my purchasing power parity, uh, my PPP stays intact. Now, conversely, um, if I live in a part of the world where there is a lot of instability and volatility, now I'm from Turkey personally, I was, I was just there and speaking to people about Bitcoin. I think within the Bitcoin community, there's this idea that people who live in um, regimes or parts of the world where the price, um, the, the their purchasing power parity or their ability to buy the the same basket of goods fluctuates a lot because of the fluctuations in the value of their local currency. I think in our community, we like to believe that they're going to just rush to adopt Bitcoin and, and go out and, and hold Bitcoin. And um, what's really funny is if you actually go out and talk to people, they don't want to hold Bitcoin. They want U.S. Dollars, And so this is where I think some of the challenge emerges in um, explaining a new asset class and also really understanding some of the macroeconomic shifts happening in, in our world. We live in a dollar-denominated world today. Um, and at the end of the day, you can't yet pay your rent or your taxes or your employees or um, you know for your groceries in, in Bitcoin. And I think someday you'll be able to, and there are certainly a number of companies I've invested in and, and worked with 
supportive and support that um, are enabling people to do that. But I think, again, for your average person who's living in a part of the world where they don't have um, stability in their currency, I think, you know, they're not necessarily thinking of Bitcoin as the solution. It's maybe one part of the solution. I think right now they're looking more at um, things like the dollar. And unfortunately, I think it's going to take some time for the world to get to a point where Bitcoin achieves that status in a in a larger sort of way. Um, I think to us in the Bitcoin community, we certainly like to pontificate about what hyper-Bitcoinization will look like and what a world um, will look like if if people start holding Bitcoin as a, a safe haven asset. But I just don't think that narrative on a global scale has, has gotten there yet. And I think, um, again, part of the challenge there is how do you communicate something that is so new? And a lot of people ask, you know, who's the CEO of Bitcoin? What's backing Bitcoin? Um, and so explaining this, it's really fundamental shift in, in mental model and how people think it's a shift in, in trust instead of trusting an institution or company or a brand, you're trusting an, an idea and a set of principles. And so um, that, in my view, is going to take some time and it's going to take um, the technology being developed. It's going to take the on and off ramps being developed. It's going to take the user experience getting a little easier. But most importantly, it's going to take some hard work from our community to translate, you know, a lot of the topics we talk about into things um, that people are actually thinking about on a day to day basis. And and so your recent experience in Turkey, did it strengthen your idea that it wasn't quite there yet, that there was this work to do? Or did it actually bring you out of a state of, let's say, being disconnected and, and sitting in one of these Bitcoin ivory towers saying, this is what hyper uh, Bitcoinization is going to look like and, and, and all that stuff? Or was this just, you know, you've been enough times, you've seen it in this context and, and you know that people just aren't ready. And even if we are seeing some increased trade flows out of Turkey on local bitcoins it really is still isolated individuals and it's it's not enough of a of a wave to to really push the needle yeah so so let's talk about that i think first and foremost um i feel like i've tried to constantly force myself to step outside the bitcoin world and um, interact with people who come from a totally different perspective totally different viewpoint i think that context is is really important especially when one of your functions is serving as a translator i sometimes feel like my role is uh you know i'm a translator between two very (laughs) different worlds um and so we have these crazy bitcoiners over here and i'm certainly a part of that community but at the same time i'm also communicating with a very different audience who has the potential to really shape and influence the trajectory of um, Bitcoin as a technology, as an infrastructure, and as an asset in very material ways. And so I think it's very important um, for me to be aware of all of the different perspectives and viewpoints um, in order to be an effective translator. And I do wish we, we did that more. I think hopefully that's that's starting, but we'll see. Um, when it comes to Turkey, so Turkey is interesting because um, ING, the bank, releases this study um, every year. This is the second year they've done it. Um, they just released it in October of this year. And um, what they look at is rates of digital currency adoption in different parts of the world, and Turkey ranks number one. And so a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, people in Turkey want to hold Bitcoin because the lira is un- unstable. And that's an attractive narrative. But the reality actually is, is that um, Turkey is a place where people are already accustomed to trading Forex. 
uh, people like speculative trading. <laughs> I'm a Turk myself, so you know we have we have that cultural sort of um, acceptance for for speculation. And so forex trading, currency trading, is something a lot of people engage in. You have a population um, that's already accustomed to digital banking because when banking services came to Turkey, they kind of leapfrogged um, the 80s and 90s, and it sort of went direct to to digital. And then um, you have a high population of of young people who um, are really interested in the technology. And what they're doing is they're they're speculating on Bitcoin. And I think that's certainly exciting. But I think the narrative that people have isn't, you know, oh, I want to protect myself from um, price fluctuation in the lira. And certainly if you look at their experience over the last year, even though the lira depreciated dramatically, had they bought Bitcoin when that happened or before that happened, they would have lost more holding Bitcoin. And so I think, again, um, it's important to be careful with these narratives because it's very easy to overgeneralize. And I don't think we're, we're quite at that point yet. So you're saying it's it, the simple argument holds they just want to make money like anybody else. And look, I think through that process, I actually think speculation is one of the great um, drivers of Bitcoin adoption, because as people start to speculate um, and as people start to interact with Bitcoin, they start to appreciate um, some of the principles and social values of Bitcoin, what it represents. And I think that leads to people holding uh, Bitcoin longer and viewing it more and more in the context of, you know, a, a form of sound digital money. But I do think um, we get a little bit overly excited about narratives that aren't really quite supported by the evidence yet. Now, the good thing is I do think the Bitcoin community is doing more diligent research. Um, you know, Cambridge in the UK releases their annual study on Bitcoin and blockchain adoption. ING, which is a global bank, is now doing their report. The coverage and the research methodology keeps getting better and better. And within the crypto space, there's also a number of new research firms that are starting to parse data in different ways to try to analyze and provide more context and insight as to what the actual growth metrics might look like. But I think, you know, as I travel around the world and interact with people all over the world, um, that that story just isn't there yet. And and so going back to what you had mentioned about, you know, Bitcoin presenting these opportunities for people to learn and and let's say inform the worldview. One, one sort of test that I've had for a long time about someone's worldview is how accurately it can predict the future. So a lot of Bitcoin people have been saying, you know, well, we anticipate a global recession because of uh, sovereign debt and, and all these other factors. When we look around the world today, we certainly see some of the things that, that people who have been in Bitcoin as long as yourself have been predicting for some time. What we're not seeing, for example, recently in the United States, not a recession, but we have seen, let's say, liquidity crunch with the repo news. Um, but Bitcoin hasn't behaved in the way that most people had predicted according to these narratives. These narratives have sort of said, if we have another round of quantitative easing in America, you're going to see a lot of demand for Bitcoin in America. The wider question being the following, what happens to Bitcoin in a recession? Is it going to be this asset that you can use to get out of these little ups and downs around the world, as many people have predicted for years now, or is it going to become more and more correlated and the demand will go down just because there isn't as much liquidity in general? 
Yeah, I think this this topic is an interesting one. And certainly, you know, it's it's very tempting for people to buy in the, into the recession narrative. Um, after all, we are in the longest bull run in market history. We're now at, at 10 years and three months and counting. Um, and and look, I think the, the fact of the matter is that um, the financial system is changing. Um, there are certain beliefs we've had for a long time about how markets should work and how investing should work. And we're now seeing a lot of those beliefs we had being proven false, right? You look at just the sheer volume of negative yielding debt. I mean, that's a bit mind boggling. <laughs> the numbers just don't make sense. You look at what's happening in the passive investing space. Um, you look at the challenges that many hedge funds are facing in generating meaningful alpha through active management. There are just a lot of challenges that um, the, the financial markets are facing, that investors are facing. But I don't think that that points naturally to we are in for a recession. Because at the end of the day, um, capital continues to flow. Um, we are continuing to see you know, people continuing to move out on the risk curve, investing in high risk, um, venture investing, more and more capital being deployed there. Um, alternatives continue to grow as an asset Class. So I think this narrative of a recession is coming is a tempting one, but I think it's one that's sort of difficult to, to predict. I'm not really in the business of reading tea leaves, <laughs> if you will. What I think is more interesting to think about, um, and one thing we've never seen, is how Bitcoin um, behaves in a recession, right? Because Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 after the 2008 financial crisis, the Bitcoin network launched. And so we've never seen it in an environment um, like a recession. And so I think there are a lot of um, what I like to call unknown unknowns about what will happen when we enter that new time. And I think, again, the forces shaping our world and the forces shaping the financial system, there are some known unknowns. But then I feel like a, a lot of investors I talk to feel that they're facing a lot of unknown unknowns. Um, and so there are a lot of open questions about what the world will look like in this new era. It does feel like we're in a new stage of, of financial markets. Um, some people call this late stage cap capitalism. Um, some people look to Japan as an example of, of what might happen. But um, again, I think my job really is trying to focus on what this means for Bitcoin and really trying to manage um, the ups and downs of what's happening with Bitcoin and crypto assets and put it in context for investors who are looking at the world, feeling very confused, looking at Bitcoin, saying like, no way, this is too much. There's so much other stuff going on in my world that I don't need to um, add more risk and add so much uncertainty by adding a highly volatile, poorly understood asset um, that I just fundamentally don't get yet. Yeah, so it's it's basically you know there's we perhaps we're living in an era of of unlimited leverage for now, which makes basically everything funded, including Bitcoin and all the ICOs and all the crazy projects. What happens if that funding just isn't there anymore? Does Bitcoin still stand up on its own, or is it the product of all this you know free money all around the world that's just looking for risk? And and as you mentioned, uh, appetites for risk are growing just because there is so much. 
uh, leverage out there that you can take and go to. Well, the hunt for yield, right? There, There is a hunt for yield because ultimately what we're relying on is, you know, in here in the U.S. and in many other um, Western and developed economies, we have a population that is retiring and um, pensions are underfunded. There are all of these social liabilities that need to get paid for. And historically, the way we've paid for them is um, through compounding of interest and through, through yield. And when that stops working, the only other alternatives is to extract it sort of from society through taxation or through inflation, right? And we're seeing that effect around the world. You look at what's happening in Chile, you look at what's happening in Argentina, you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, you look at what's happening in the UK. Um, you know, there's only so much you can squeeze that out of a system. So I think there are a lot of fundamental existential questions about the relevance of nation states, um, the relevance of, of currencies generally. And what I think is so interesting about Bitcoin, if we leave aside sort of the, the price of Bitcoin and these arguments around Bitcoin as sound money and these things that are very exciting, I think what's even more interesting is the, the questions that Bitcoin introduces to the conversation. So when people first learn about Bitcoin, I think it opens their mind to the idea that there is a different choice because we've never really contemplated a world where I could hold something other than government issued currency. And so that to me is the more interesting and more profound question. And now, of course, with China announcing the digital renminbi, um, with you know uh, a lot of U.S. corporations, including Facebook, looking at getting involved in the currency game in different ways, or in the cryptocurrency game, or other versions of digitized dollar, digitized source of value, I think it starts to get really interesting. Meltem, you've always enjoyed a real uh, tremendous bird's eye view of the industry at your time with DCG and now with CoinShares. Um, you're really someone who's able to um, not just be in touch with the sort of grassroots of the industry, but also the more sophisticated investors, buyers, all of those folks. Have you seen a change uh, from their perspective in the last six months around Bitcoin in, in what they're looking for, the questions they're asking um, and what they're interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are certainly um, getting smarter, faster. I think a part of what's so amazing about the Bitcoin community is just the extremely high um, level of quality content that's out there that's produced by members of the community for free, is easily available online, on Twitter, um, on people's websites, on blogs, in podcasts. There's just a real wealth of content, information, knowledge being created, shared, disseminated, expanded on, um, which I think is really exciting. And people are responding to that. And people are certainly reading that and, and reacting to it. Um, and so I think people are starting to gain more of an appreciation for an understanding of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. But at the same time, I think there's also more confusion than ever. <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people who look to Bitcoin's success and attempt to use it as a way to substantiate whatever their project is. Mm -hmm. And we saw a lot of this with the ICOs um, of 2017 and 2018. You know, everyone wanted to build a better, greener, faster, more scalable Bitcoin 
coin, um, name your favorite feature here. Mm -hmm. I like to call this the era of feature fetish in, mm -hmm. in blockchains. <laughs> but I think uh, there are so many things about Bitcoin that can't be replicated. But what you get is you get a bunch of people in the market who are, you know, spreading um, their own narratives around what Bitcoin is and why their asset or their project is different or better. And I think that market confusion is not being reflected at the government level where we see a lot of conversation around central bank issued digital currency, a lot of fundamental misunderstandings about how Bitcoin works, um, even in U.S. Congress. I think there was this perception from some of our congressmen and congresswomen that Bitcoin was unregulated. And I think, again, the confusion there is, yes, as a uh, protocol, there is no regulation around Bitcoin. But if you operate a Bitcoin company and you're domiciled in the US or you touch a US customer, you're subject to the rules and regulations of this nation. And um, there are a lot of rules and regulations from every agency out there going from the CFTC to the IRS to FinCEN. Um, so this sort of notion that Bitcoin's unregulated, I think, is just a misunderstanding. And I think um, the media has also played a big part in that, in perpetuating some of the sensationalism of, of what's happening here. And so unfortunately, um, there are this series of, of narratives that have defined Bitcoin for the last 10 years of its existence. I think they're starting to die down and, and fade a bit. But I think that's just a really strong inertia that we as the Bitcoin community need to overcome. And unfortunately, we have not done a very good job with, with storytelling and with grasping the, the why. It still feels like it's stuck in a bit of an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm really hopeful, you know, that as more and more people start to understand Bitcoin, start to get interested in Bitcoin and in digital currencies, um, and they go out there and they educate them themselves, um, whether it's going through events like Consensus Invest or whether it's listening to podcasts or, or reading blogs, that they'll they'll start to piece together their own view of the world. But I guess that's one of the challenges of having no leader, no central coordinator, no marketing body for, for Bitcoin. I like the comment you made about the, that future fetish because it's something that comes up. You know, people will say, well, what if there's a better Bitcoin? Well, this isn't Nintendo. It's not consumer electronics. This is something different. It's cryptography and it, it develops at a different pace than Nintendo or video games. Just because something's newer doesn't mean it's more useful and will we'll sell it and fix some feature. Right. The very idea that people have, have accepted the, the, and have a demand for this secure network that in many ways is already the most secure network in the world, uh, depending on your, 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 your basis uh, or your metrics. Um, you know, here it is. Yeah. It, it's got the buy-in, you know, not the same well, as consumer technology. Yeah, and I think when people talk about features, you know, a lot of the common complaints you hear about Bitcoin are either around um, technical features or um, certain aspects of, of Bitcoin. And I think it sort of misses the, the point. Um, yes, Bitcoin is technology. Yes, Bitcoin is infrastructure. It's it's communication infrastructure, um, but we communicate about value um, and we can also communicate you know, other types of information. And yes, Bitcoin is about uh, money. But at the end of the day, I think Bitcoin more than anything else represents um, a social movement and a set of ideas. And I know that sounds very esoteric and a bit philosophical, but I think what a lot of people are starting to grasp is they go down the proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I love that we call it a rabbit hole because it's such a strong reference to the movie, The Matrix, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is great. 
Yeah, but I think, you know, as people start to learn more and more about Bitcoin, they understand that it's less and less about technical features, but it's more about the, some of the unique aspects of Bitcoin's design that are impossible to replicate. And at the end of the day, we've seen this time and time again. If you have a company that has paid employees, you have a known founder, you have entities that are set up that hold funds that were raised, um, that creates points of, of failure that governments can go after. And Bitcoin's sort of uh, birth and creation and the myth of Satoshi Nakamoto and how Bitcoin was launched and released into the world, I think has some of those characteristics of um, other social movements that sort of emerge that are, are leaderless, that become really powerful. And by the way, throughout history, a lot of revolutions have been started by pseudonymous or anonymous creators, right? Uh, writers who have hidden or obfuscated their names. And so I think um, there's this interesting sort of tension there where a lot of people try to reduce or simplify Bitcoin to just technology or to just money or to just one thing. And it is complex and multidisciplinary and multifaceted. So in order to have that conversation, I think it just takes time for people to understand these multiple components that are working together to imbue Bitcoin with some of the really unique characteristics that it has. And I, I did notice your um, your reference to the Matrix uh, on Twitter recently, where you did that great Twitter thread sort of linking what it really meant for the pills. And, and I think that speaks to what you're mentioning right now, this sort of a choice of the foundation that you're going to create some of these important supranational institutions out of, or even just ideas that link us together. Uh, maybe they're not institutions at all. Maybe they're just the, the type of tissue that, that goes between us all so that we can transact and, and, and have these types of relationships without the, the sort of pieces in the middle that were necessary to make it happen before. Um, so, so once again, mentioning the reference to uh, your Twitter thread, any graph or chart or particular visual insight you have uh, to, to offer the audience um, that can really sort of um, capture what you're thinking right now with Bitcoin in the world? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think just going back to, to that thread, one of the points I was trying to make was the point around uh, systemic risk and um, SIFIs or uh, systemically important financial institutions and what that means for for system. <laughs> so um, I think one one chart that's really important, one graph that's really important and thought to keep in mind is um, the percent of the total Bitcoin supply that's held in third-party custody. And there is this ongoing sort of, you know, meme in the Bitcoin community around not your keys, not your coin. But there is a fundamental question I have that if we institutionalize and financialize Bitcoin and we take, you know, 50% of the world's Bitcoin supply, lock it up somewhere, say with the DTCC, and we start trading uh, paper certificates that represent an underlying Bitcoin and sort of dematerialize Bitcoin markets and detach them from the underlying, um, what does that really do for us other than to create a new tool for speculation? I'm not really sure. And so one metric I've been tracking closely is the number of Bitcoin um, in third-party custody, according to our latest research, which is linked in the thread um, and also on our CoinShares website, it's uh, close to 20%. And so that's just an interesting thing to, to keep in mind. Um, and then the, the next thing I'm looking at, so that sort of relates to the level of systemic risk we're creating. And in my view, you know, if we're just recreating the same financial system, if we're recreating banks and institutions and governments because they're the people who hold the, the coins ultimately and control who can access them, then that doesn't really accomplish much of the end state of, of Bitcoin, which I think is interesting and sort of intellectually 
challenging to think about. Um, it's important to stay intellectually honest as we, we look at these things. And then the second thing I think about that's really more relevant on the macro scale is um, the balance of accounts and trade flows between countries. I think one of the big questions that's emerging now, you know, U.S. economic, political, military hegemony um, has been a reality for the last hundred years almost. And as we start to see um, geopolitics shift and get reshaped, and as we start seeing increasing um, anger and social frustration in the world about wealth inequality and um, income inequality and the unequal consumption of our planet's resources and what the implications are, I do think, um, you know, we are starting to see nation states and and people kind of waking up and saying, wait a minute, why are we living in a dollar-defined world? And um, it's interesting to see just over the weekend, Rosneft, which is Russia's largest um, energy exporter, said that they were going to start um, taking steps to minimize their use of the U.S. dollar with the plan to eliminate it completely. And so they could use euros, um, maybe they'll use digital renminbi, maybe they'll create their own digital currency as a means for payment and, and settlement. But that I think is really material because uh, the petrodollar, you know, um, the dollar defines 90% of trade flows in the energy industry, and the energy industry is a huge part of the global economy. And then the other thing that's really interesting here is the narrative around uh, China's adoption of, of blockchain technology uh, and the recent statements made by the government there that they fully intend to create a digitized currency um, that is going to be used by commercial banks to start. And what do commercial banks do? They finance trade flows. <laughs> and so I do think there is an increasing awareness on the importance of the base currency that's used um, to sort of shape economic activity around the world. And that's an area I think is really fascinating because, again, some of the aspects of Bitcoin that make it unique, the fact that it's leaderless and not controlled by any one entity, and um, some of these things could potentially also position Bitcoin well to be a neutral sort of means of, of value transfer. Um, and so I think it will just be very interesting to see how different nation states attempt to capture that, that narrative and attempt to use certain aspects of what we've learned from the growth and rise of, of Bitcoin and other digital currencies to shape their own place in the world's financial system. Well, fascinating stuff, Meltem. We're uh, coming up at the end of our time here. So you're going to be leading off Consensus Invest. You're our, you're our first keynote speaker out of the out of the blocks that morning. So uh, right excited to have you there. Excited to hear uh, what you what you have in store. The research that you guys have been working on at CoinShares. Uh, I still use your mining profitability document that you guys created a year ago. Uh, to really test the, the the or to quantify mining profitability through that whole big run. So keep up the good uh, work. CoinShares research, research continues to be a reliable resource for myself. Uh, thank you a ton for your time. Thank you. I'll see you soon, Nolan. Enjoyed this episode? I'd like to personally invite you to come to Invest New York in November. The event features not only the speaker you just heard, but an array of other amazing thinkers. Visit coindesk.com and click events or simply follow the link in the description. Thanks for listening and see you in New York City.